Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. my good friends hope you're doing well today thank you so much for stopping by hopefully i can get through this without too much hacking coughing and snorting i don't know what in the world it is i'm allergic to but it's taking a stick to me this year anyway happy thanksgiving y'all and i'll try not to take too much of your time now you think what with us going through these pieces of dog squeeze at the rate we do we'd finally run out of well, we've run out of them, or at least maybe resort to talking about ones that are maybe a little boring. But no, there seems to be an endless supply of these deviants, and the whole gaggle of them just keep right on giving. Now, I, just like you, I, mean, I just keep getting downright shocked by what to come up with next. This one, folks, uh, well, you're just going to have to hear it to believe it. I'll say right now that every bit of it's true. No, I didn't make any of it up. So come on in, take your shoes off, set a spell, and I'll tell you one more unbelievably true tale. Now, David Paul Brown was born February 15, 1957, in Worcester, Massachusetts. His mother was in an auto accident when she was pregnant with David, which left her in neck traction for about six months. Even though the doctors told her that David was fine, his mother, Tyra, noticed that the baby hadn't moved or kicked like her other children did, but uh, again, the doctors said it was normal. Well, his birth was a breech birth, and he wasn't breathing at first, but the doctors worked with him, and by all indications, he seemed to be in good shape after that. Now, right out of the box, he had an unending appetite and ate constantly and slept for a long periods of time. If he wasn't eating, then he was screaming and crying to eat. So every time he cried, a teat went in his mouth, which his mother said he tried to chew off every time he was fed, which to me meant that he'd be weaned by the time the first tooth cleared the gum. Now, he had a nickname. It was Bibi, which came from his father. While changing his son's diaper, dear old dad noticed that his doodads were about the size of a BB. So BB became his nickname, and by golly, it stuck. As he grew, dear old dad would attempt to wail on him with a belt for his bad behavior, but before anything could get done to him, his mother would jump in and save him right there at the last minute. He became a pathological liar and would do things right in front of people and flat out lie in their face about it. He would 
For instance, he'd steal his siblings' toys and cram them all in his mouth, and they would ask him if he took them, and he would stand there and deny it with the objects falling out of his mouth. I suppose his mother thought that was cute, just like about every other time he got done or got into trouble or done something sick or twisted or something or messed up. But yet, folks, you put a stop to these things when they're young, and that's where the term nip it in the bud came from. By the time he was five years old, he was already an overgrown sack of monkey dung that walked around choking the classmates at will. He actually had his first bout with police over choking out a girl in class. Of course, nothing was done to him. As, as we say, that becomes a pattern for him. The little monster would pick scabs on his arms, beat the scab, and then suck blood out of the wounds until they became infected. I guess by this age, he no longer had a teat to chew a nipple off of, so that was the next best thing. Imagine getting that call from a principal, a little warped deviant sitting in the office while the principal and teachers are afraid to turn their back on him to get the phone and try to call the mother to come in and take out the trash. Now, this did occur many times. The only thing Mom did was stop by Mickey D's on the way home and get him a sack full of burgers and fries because, again, nothing was done, no counseling, no nothing. Then, at seven years old, David, being a sadistic little piece of dog squeeze that he was, invited his neighbor, who was a five-year-old girl, over to see his Ouija board, which he received for his birthday. Yeah, I know. That's all he needed, right? I can foretell your future is what he told the girl. Well, you guessed it. Screams started coming up from the basement where they were playing. And David's mother who was impervious to the fact that her boy wasn't right in the head, rushed downstairs to find that he had the girl, his hands around the girl's neck and attempted to strangle the life out of her. I reckon he was trying to tell her that she didn't have a future. Uh, Mom screamed at the beat red little faced heathen who broke the choke hold and flopped on his plump little rear end and started wailing on the floor that he hadn't done anything. He said that he had put his hands around her neck or because she demanded to be choked. After saving the little girl and sending her home, little David had absolutely nothing done to him again. Thank God that the little girl's mother kept her away from the little monster from there on in. Now, this looks to me like one of them cases where the mother thought everything the little monster did was unintentional and really didn't hurt anything. I can only imagine the mother finding him in the basement strangling the life out of a five-year-old girl, yelling to his father, now, I get the feeling that it wasn't the kind of yelling for his father that my mother would have done, but it was probably more along the lines of, oh, honey, hurry up, look at him. He's so cute. He's pretending to be the Boston Strangler. Something along those lines is what I'm thinking. But clearly something was wrong with him. Now, yet nothing was done. He just kept right on getting worse until the age of 13 when he lured a six-year-old boy from the neighborhood on a hill outside the house, claiming that he wanted to go sledding with him. Once they got to the top of the hill, the little monster raped the poor boy. Again, as unbelievable as it sounds, nothing at all was done. Then, during his senior year of high school, the deviant impersonated a police officer headed over to the elementary school and abducted an eight-year-old Richard O'Connor while he was on his way to school. He did the same thing to him in the front seat of his car. Luckily, a neighbor witnessed the attack from a window and called the police, and the officers found him in the process of doing all of that and rescued the poor little boy who was unconscious and almost dead. Finally, the moron was arrested and sentenced to, well, <laughs> an unknown number of months on probation. There, that'll learn him. 
Oh, no, no, we, we know better than that, don't we? Just a few days before his graduation, near the end of his sentence, and the unending air pipe of misery drove over to Hartford, Connecticut, and again impersonated a police officer. This time, he abducted a nine-year-old girl and proceeded to do exactly the same thing to her right there in the front seat of his car. Then threw her out on the side of the road like garbage after he was done, and she, she started to convulse and vomit, of course. A witness got the license plate of his car when he saw the girl come out the door, and he was again arrested for that, but the report on his arrest never came back to Mr. Brown's probation officer, and he was released from probation on May 1976 with a attaboy letter thanking him for his cooperation and commending him on his successful completion of his probation for the love of Mike. On September 24, 1977, he impersonated an FBI agent and abducted two boys coming out of a movie theater. He drove them to a secluded area where they were handcuffed. David, who by his own by this time weighed 375 pounds, left one of the boys in the car's trunk while he took the other away and simultaneously tried to strangle and suffocate him with his body weight until he thought the kid was dead. And then he even jumped up and down on his chest just to make sure. As it turned out, the boy actually pretended to be dead and was even able to keep up the act even when the deviant was blowing cigarette ashes in his face. When the genius left, the boy ran away and reported him to police. He was again arrested, and the other boy was rescued. This time, he was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to between 18 and 22 years in prison. But... He was transferred to the Bridgewater State Hospital where he told psychiatrists repeatedly about having sexual fantasies involving murder, torture, and dissection, and even cannibalism. While he was still interred, on March 22, 1984, he changed his legal name to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Barjona, claiming that he wanted to honor his Jewish heritage, none of which he actually had, and that he wanted to know what it was like to be a discriminated Jew. Now, it's more like the reasoning that he actually got the kosher food that the Jewish prisoners were given. Mr. Barjona was released from the hospital on July 1991. Less than a month later, he saw a seven-year-old boy sitting inside a car outside a post office in Oxford, Massachusetts. He crawled into the car and sat on top of the boy trying to smother the poor boy until he, with his weight, which was now about 400-some pounds, but jumped out and took off running once he was seen. I just got to wonder how fast a sack of cottage cheese could have run and managed to get away, but he did. Mr. Barjona's description was recognized by one of the police officers who'd arrested him 15 years before, and he was again arrested. Mr. Barjona claimed that he entered the car to get in out of the rain and that he intended to wait for the driver to return and asked him to take him home. As for the boy, he said he didn't even know the boy was there. Didn't see him. It's just any injury he got from the whole thing was just purely accidental. But finally, he admitted his intent was to kill the boy. For this, Mr. Barjona was given two years of probation under the condition that he moved with his mother to Great Falls, Montana and never returned to Massachusetts ever again. So... Basically, take your ass to Montana and kill whoever you want to out there. We're tired of dealing with you. Folks, this nutball's just getting started. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley.
Now, folks, it's important to note right here that the Great Falls Police requested all the information on the dirt bag right when he got there and was completely stonewalled it and didn't receive anything. And the Great in Great Falls, Mr. Barjona started collecting toys and mostly Star Wars-related memorabilia and organizing yard sales that, guess what, grew massive crowds of children. Uh, nothing to see here, right? But his first brush with the law in Montana was in December 1993 when he was accused of molestation by an eight-year-old boy who he was babysitting. Of course, he defended himself by stating that if he had done it, in reality, he, he would have just killed the boy to keep him quiet. Yeah, that's a heck of a defense, ain't it? The case was dropped after his lawyer claimed that his right to a speedy trial had been violated. So, he skated on that one. On February 10th, 1996, 10-year-old Zach Ramsey disappeared on his way to school. Witnesses saw an off-white vehicle almost running Ramsey over and later recounted that he was crying and appeared to be followed by an obese man around the time he disappeared. Now, Detective Bill Belushi, who investigated the December 1993 case, was assigned to investigate Ramsey's disappearance. Although he was provided with a list of registered sex offenders living in the area by the FBI, Detective Belushi discarded it and centered his suspicion on Mr. Barjona, who wasn't registered. After an unsuccessful police attempt to enter the home shared by Mr. Barjona and his mother, Detective Belushi put together a search warrant of the property, but he was turned down. He later found that Mr. Barjona had access to his mother's off-white Toyota Corolla that he had the day and he had the day off and that he was seen standing in the alley just before Zach Ramsey entered it. Now Mr. Barjona was also wearing a dark blue jacket that day similar to the uniform of a police officer. He was seen in the constant close proximity of young Mr. Ramsey and had mentioned Zach Ramsey's name to a friend a few days before he disappeared. Detective Volusi added all of the, that to a new search warrant and the judge laughed that one out of court too. Sometime later, Mr. Barjona moved out of his mother's house. On December 13th of 1999, he was seen outside an elementary school for the third time in a few days. He was wearing a dark blue jacket and a knit cap and was carrying two guns and two cans of pepper spray. And the guns, of course, were toy, and so was the badge he was carrying. I guess he bought them at Walmart. Despite the doubts of their colleagues, Detective Belushi, and the Attorney General charged Mr. Barjona with impersonating a police officer and carrying a concealed weapon. That's when a judge approved a search warrant for the for the impersonation of objects, that's what it was limited to, in both Mr. Barjona's house and his mother's house. And a police found two coats, both of them are dark blue, and another with a toy badge on the pocket. A second toy badge a stun gun and a baseball cap reading security enforcement and during the search they also found a pulley on the ceiling of Mr. Barjona's kitchen two photo albums with cutouts of children and two <clears throat> documents about bondage and autoerotic asphyxiation now two days later Detective Belushi was granted a second search warrant for any documents and photographic material besides the albums they also found Several lists of boys' names later identified as boys from Mr. Barjona's youth in Massachusetts, including three that he'd molested 
One also had an entry for Zach Ramsey next to the word dead. 3,500 photographs of children, multiple news clippings about Zach Ramsey's disappearance, and undeveloped film containing sexual images of Mr. Barjona and three unidentified boys were also recovered. In addition to police, police discovered a book written in code, which was cracked and revealed to be a cookbook with recipes such as Little Boy Pot Pie, French Fried Kid, and Little Boy Stew. Finally, police found a large stained section of plywood in Mr. Barjona's garage, which was scrubbed with bleach and also struck several times with a meat cleaver, as if it had been used as a cutting board. A luminol test on the same room revealed that the word Tita had been written on the floor. This was tentatively linked to a James Tita, who was a 15-year-old boy who was found raped and strangled in Ringe, New Hampshire in 1973. Now, further inquiries seemed to confirm the officer's fears that Mr. Barjona had killed and cooked Zach Ramsey and possibly other children. It was learned that in the days after Zach's disappearance, Mr. Barjona held cookouts for the neighbors and even cooked out for the actual search party looking for Zach, where he served deer burgers that tasted strange, saying that he'd hunted, killed, butchered, and wrapped the meat all by himself. I bet he did. But Mr. Barjona didn't own a gun or have a hunting license, and credit card records suggested that he stopped buying food for a month after Zach Ramsey disappeared. A former roommate of Mr. Barjona had seen a pair of bloody gloves and soiled buddy boy's clothing matching Zach Ramsey's at Mr. Barjona's apartment. Now, Mr. Barjona had also surprised people several times by bringing up Zach Ramsey, including one time when he said that the boy would never be found because he had been chopped up and the parts scattered in different places. Finally, hair that resembled a human's was found inside uh, Mr. Barjona's meat grinder and an excavation at a former residence covered 20, uh, found 21 bone fragments belonging to a boy between 8 and 13 years old. The house's pipes couldn't be examined because the neighbors who'd moved in after he left had changed them due to them constantly being clogged up. DNA from the hair and the bones belonged to two different African-American males, neither of whom was Zach Ramsey's. Zach's mother later refused to believe that her son was dead or that Mr. Barjona was of any way related to his disappearance. A psychic convinced her that Zach was living in Italy. Now, she threatened to defend Mr. Barjona if he was brought to trial for her son's murder. Eventually, the charges related to Zach Ramsey's disappearance were dropped and the police focused on other possibilities. Now, two names in a list belonged to two boys who lived in the same apartment building as Mr. Barjona who were in his photographic films. Now, one of the boys confirmed that the deviant Barjona invited him to a sleepover and then molested him, but the other boy visited the monster in jail and wrote him saying that he was his friend and he'd never heard a hair on his head. Didn't matter, though. He was charged with sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping, and assault with a deadly weapon because he'd literally carried out autoerotic asphyxia with one of the boys in the kitchen on that pulley that the police had found. He was convicted and sentenced in 2002 to 130 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, on April 13, 2008, Mr. Barjona, 
who had one leg removed due to the diabetes, being from him being overweight, you know, the sack of dog squeeze that he was, he was found dead in his cell from a heart attack related to his obesity. Now, three years later, Zach Ramsey's father had him declared legally dead over the opposition of his mother, who was still convinced that he was alive. God bless her, I can't even imagine. Now, folks, that's the way these abusers work. They gain the confidence of parents and don't abuse those children just to set up the situation of them being good persons so that when they strike, nobody is supposed to believe it, and that they'd even do it. This guy was dangerous, and there wasn't any fixing him. Something in his brain just wasn't connecting right. I know no boy, nobody enjoyed this one, but it needed telling, folks. Um, that, you know, you need to know just how evil these monsters are and that there are still more of them out there. At least that's my belief. My papa told me years ago that the evil, these evil monsters are like rats. If you see one, then there's probably a hundred more you don't see. So keep your head on a swivel when it comes to looking out for yourselves and the ones you love. If you like the podcast, give us a rate and review, please. It helps the podcast grow. Oh, and don't forget to follow us on whatever media you're listening on. Join us on the Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we talk Appalachian or whatever else comes up. I'll see you again real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend. Happy Thanksgiving and love y'all.